Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What do you do in your spare time? Well, how about solving 150-year-old mysteries? Ten years ago, a woman in Maine bought a Victorian-era dress in a vintage store. But in the pocket of that dress, she found a cryptic message. And the message said, Bismarck, Omit, Leafage, Buck, Bank. (laughs) What the heck was that? So the owner of this dress put that online. And hobbyist cryptographers all over the world took up the challenge to find out what that meant. It took 10 years, but it was actually solved by our next guest. Wayne Chan is a University of Manitoba computer research analyst and is with us to tell us all about how he did it. Well, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us. First off, let me ask you, how did you first hear about this big mystery? Um, well, I first came across it in the uh, the summer of 2018. Um, it was being discussed on a couple of uh, cryptographic uh, websites. And so you're big into cryptography, right? What is that exactly? Well, you know, it's just a, you know, cryptography is the creation of of, of, uh, of secret messages, and cryptanalysis is the uh, breaking of them. Okay, so you had this mysterious message that was found in a dress, a very old dress. So where do you even and start with this? Like, where where did you start to try to figure out what this message said? Yeah, so, you know, there was a rough consensus online that it was probably some sort of telegraphic uh, code because you, you have understandable English words. Um, if you're dealing with, with a cipher, the words are, are scrambled or they're, or they're using different characters or symbols to represent uh, um, the, the original characters. But, but in this case, you know, you, you already have English words. Um, so it was most likely a telegraphic cipher, a telegraphic code, but there were different, definitely other opinions about it. Okay, what is a telegraphic code? Yeah, so you know, so during the telegraphic era, from like you know the 1840s to maybe the 1950s or so, uh, they used codes for for two main reasons. Uh, one was for privacy because your your telegrams pass through many hands on the way to its recipient. Uh, but the second reason was for economy, because you're, you're being charged by the word, which is what happened in this case, that the, the code in this case was being used uh, to, to save on a number of words. Right. So then how do you figure out, they would have been quite personal, right? Weren't there different types of codes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that was a problem is, you know, I remember writing down in my notes back in 2018 that, you know, the general consensus is this would be unsolvable unless we found the, the the right code book. But that's like looking for a needle in a haystack because they produced hundreds of code books during this era. Okay, so then how did you start? Where did you find the code books? What did you do? Right. So so in 2018, I, I thought it was a, a different type of code book. Um, so basically, after a few months, I gave up because I wasn't getting anywhere. And then I did, I really didn't look at it for another four years until uh, the, the holiday season of 2022. And then what uh, happened? So then I, did, uh, well, so then I, I decided to, to look at it again, but I, I first made sure that no one had cracked it in, in the last four years, and I, I was really surprised that, that no one had figured it out, so I decided to take another look at it. 
So basically, I went through about 170 different uh, telegraphic code books um, for, from that era, and I, I didn't find anything that really really matched. So I, again, you know, by by around Boxing Day of 2022, I was ready to give up again. So I decided, well, you know, I'm not getting anywhere by looking through all these code books, and you know, there's there's a good chance that the the uh, the code book that I need, you know might have had limited distribution. It might not even be, there might not be any surviving copies of it by this time. So I thought, well, I'm going to take a step back and try to look at, at this differently. I'm going to try to immerse myself in the, in the uh, telegraphic era and I, to, you know, just to understand more about how the telegraph was used. So I decided to start looking at literature about the telegraph from that time period, from like the 1880s. Um, and that's when I did, I was just flipping through a, a book from 1880 that talked about different uses of the telegraph. I just I was just reading a chapter about weather codes, and then they gave a couple of examples of, of this weather code. And I was thinking, that kind of looks like my code. So, so, so that's basically that's what led to today's solution. Wayne, what amazes me about your description here is that you're talking about your hobby. This is not your full-time job, right? No. <laughs> right, exactly. This I, I, I basically only do this during my holidays. <laughs> Only during your holidays do you read these books about, where do you find all the information? I'm sure the internet is great, but some of these books and things you're talking about, where do you find all this? Yeah, like, well, so, so, so for these old telegraphic code books, some of them are online, um, although in a lot of cases you only have like excerpts of, of, of a code book. Like, they might show like a one page from, from a code book. Uh, others, others uh, you know, my, my university library had a few of them. Um, I had one copy, like a physical copy of a, of a code book from the 1880s. Um, but other like the 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 one that finally matched this this uh, this code, I had to like obtain a, a microfiche of it. More research. So basically, basically, <laughs> basically, my 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 university library had to contact some library in the U.S. to to find a microfiche that contained this code book. Okay, all because you recognized one word in there. You were able to figure out that one word was a weather code. Not well, not one word. Like the, the example that gave what was like like six words, like you like you like you see in 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 the dress code, right? So and then it, it but the format of it looked familiar, and because I've been looking at the 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 the, the dress code for so long that it, it the wording the, the words that they used look similar to you know to, to what was in the the, the the dress code. Okay, so what did you find out that when you cracked it, what did it say? Okay, so it turns out that there are weather observations. Um, and, and the, these uh, observations were, were done by the U.S. Army Signal Corps, or Signal Service, as they called it back in the 1880s. And the reason for that is that the, the Signal Corps was the, uh, the National Weather Service for the United States back during this time period. So the message which originally said Bismarck, Omit, Leafage, Buck, Bank, what did that actually mean? Okay, so, so Bismarck is just Bismarck, North Dakota, right? Okay. Uh, omit was the air temperature and the barometric pressure. Uh, the the temperature was 56 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or, or like 13 degrees Celsius. Uh, leafage was the dew point temperature, which was 32 Fahrenheit or, or zero Celsius. And leafage also meant was also stood for the observation time, which was 10 10, 10 o'clock at night. Okay. Uh, buck buck was the state of the weather, which was clear. Uh, and it also encoded for the precipitation, which was none. And, oh, and also, also wind direction. Like so, so what's interesting is that each code word represented like two or three uh, weather variables, right? So, so leafage also so leafage meant dew point, observation time, and state of weather. Or sorry, um, buck I should say, 
uh, it represented a state of weather, precipitation, and wind direction. And then what was uh, bank? Oh, and bank was the, uh, the wind speed, uh, which was 12 miles an hour. So that's actually quite a lengthy weather observation report that came from just those words, Bismarck, Omen. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's, how they're trying to, that's how they're trying to save money because they're being charged by the word. And you can imagine if they sent this full report unencrypted, it would cost them a lot more money. Right. right. And, and they were, they were uh, you know, they had like almost 200 weather stations across the U.S. So they would be sending these reports uh, like three times a day. Right. That is so cool, so, Wayne. And you so it, would, it. It, it would have cost <laughs> it would have cost them a lot of money to do this uh, if they didn't encrypt the uh, the, the messages. So right. yeah. So and 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 this weather code evolved over 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 time. So when the uh, signal service first started uh, doing weather in the 1870s, uh, their code it took about 10 to 12 words on average to encode a full weather report. By by but by the 1880s. They could do with six or seven words. Cool. So, Wayne, this was like a great big mystery that you cracked. What do you do now with your time? Did you find something else that you have to work on now? <laughs> well, I, I've been telling people I've been busy talking to, to all of you in the media, <laughs> so I haven't had time to work on it. <laughs> but, however, as a result of, of all these, um, these uh, media interviews, I've had several requests for assistance with decryption. All right. So we're, you're going to be busy for a while. Listen, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. That's Wayne Chan. Wayne is a research computer analyst at the University of Manitoba, but his side job, his hobby, is being a hobbyist cryptographer, and he cracked this code. And it was so cool. Like, those weather codes were just so amazing with how much detail they were able to present with one word, right? Love that story. So cool. This is Mornings with Simi. I do love it when we talk about words that are overused or words that need to be banished. I'm so glad that Scott Chance has brought us a new list for that. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you, Simi? I am good, thank you. Yeah, I like lists like this too because uh, I consider myself moderately cool. You know, I like to think that I am in the know, that I people look at me and listen to okay, me when can, they you, hear me. Yeah, I get it, I get it. <laughs> Well, because, and part of doing that is staying on top of what words are cool and sure. what words aren't cool, okay. right? Uh, so, when your kids are, te- I, can I get back to you when your kids are teenagers <laughs> and they give you a bit of a reality check on all of that? But he- At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Here's the thing, Simi. Part of being cool is not caring what other people think, specifically my kids. Oh, okay. Good luck with that. Okay. Uh, So Lake Superior State University, they've been doing this since 1976, where they released this list of what they call banished words. It's like words that people are misusing or have taken on other meanings or whatever, the buzzwords that people hate to hear. And uh, it's kind of become a thing. So they do this every year, and they've just released their words of this year. There's 10 words, and uh, we'll run down some of them to 
depending on how much time we have. But these are hilarious, and they're words that you should definitely stop using in 2024. Start with the first one, because I've got thoughts. Okay, the first word that you need to stop using is hack. Thank you. As in life hack, oh. or I have a hack for you to be b- worse. hack, workplace hack, life hack, it's not, beauty it's hack. Just, it's not a hack, it's just life. Yes. I hate that. Yes. It's driving me insane. Yeah, the, the, the term originally came from like hackers using doing tech things, and they say in that context. It's like a context, shortcut. It's supposed yes. to be a shortcut for something, but no, it is not a life hack when you're just doing things that the rest of us have been right. doing for decades already. Like putting your cream in your coffee before the coffee so you don't have to use a spoon to stir it up, like not a hack. It's fine. And also, not, you're not even supposed to do that because it changes the temperature of the coffee. Right. Uh, so also on the list, at the end of the day, so this is more than a word, it's just like a, a saying, but at the end of the day, Simi, I think that everybody knows that I'm kind of cool, right? Like saying at the end of the day, <laughs> I'm, just use, I'm just using it as an example. At the end of the day, nobody really cares if I'm right. cool or not, right. right? At the end of the day doesn't mean anything. And people just use it to sort of try to emphasize the point that they're making. I will support this one just, as well. Yeah, just stop saying sure. it. No one cares. It doesn't add anything to what you're saying. This is great. The word riz, R-I-Z-Z. Okay, I don't, un- I, I, I don't think I hear this one enough to have thoughts on this. Yeah, so this actually was the 2023 Oxford Press Word of the Year. So a lot of people are using it, riz. It's a short form for charisma. So I would say, oh, hey, Simi, you've got riz today, you know? Or Simi is a person who ha- is using, I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm using it you see this look on right. my face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> but it's obviously, bi- it's out there, right? People are using it. This Oxford is not riz right big. now, Scott. This okay. is not riz. So who would we say has riz? Uh, uh, Ken Sim has riz. Or maybe Ken Sim doesn't have riz. That's the context that you would use it in. Right. But I also think that if you're Taylor Swift, that girl's I got riz. I was just thinking Taylor Swift. Yeah, that's okay. a better example. I get it. I but get it. But stop using it. Just say, she's got charisma. You sound more intelligent, and uh, you're using the term properly, and uh, it, it, stop with the riz. Please do. Yes. I love all the words that they've got on this. Like, I don't love these words. What I mean is I love that they've put these words on this list. Like, slay, iconic, cringeworthy, obsessed, side hustle, and wait for it. I I agree wholeheartedly with getting rid of all of these. Stop saying wait for it. Stop saying, oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with that or calling something iconic if it's not really iconic. Also, side hustle is not... A side hustle. People have been having second jobs forever yeah. as a way to make ends meet. Well, it's just what people do. They, people say it because it makes them feel better about having a second job when really it's, it's like just, a bad thing. Yeah, that, yeah well, like, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Exactly. I love all of these. Yeah, it's a really fun list, and people want to add to it. Apparently, they got thousands and thousands of uh, nominations for words that should be on the list. I have one. And these are the top. Oh, you have another one. Okay. I have one that I would add to this list. Okay, let's have it. Whatnot. Oh, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. I noticed so many people using this, people in my family who are sleeping right now, and I can say this because they're not listening, but it drives me crazy in conversation where they're saying, oh, you know, went to go and do this and whatnot. And I think, yeah, yeah. I, just, I overhear it. They're just filling the sentence with extra space. I'll add the one that I will add. It's similar to whatnot is I'm just being honest. 
Let me be honest. Oh, Scott, honestly, I've heard you say that many times. Really? Yes. Uh, okay, well, True. now I need you to call me out any time I say it. It doesn't annoy me. I'm just saying I have noticed you do say that. But why do I need to emphasize that I'm being honest? Shouldn't I just be it's honest just a, anyway? It's just a turn of phrase. But that's what all of these, that's what whatnot is. Well, but it's so often, so often. I would love to hear from people what phrase, what word would you banish completely? And we'll compare it to this list that Scott has found too. Scott, thank you for that. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, so we're coming up on a week since the BC Supreme Court kind of surprised everybody with that ruling about open drug use. What has the government said about this? Uh, we're waiting. You know, you can tell the government was caught by surprise. And look, I know it's, you know, some ministers and so forth are still on holiday and they haven't completely gotten into 2024, but you can tell the government's really struggling with this one and we're caught by surprise because so far we've had very little response. Uh, Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, who who steered the legislation through the House that restricted open drug use, uh, Farnworth put out a statement when the court decision came out on Friday saying uh, it concerned and we're going to study it. And then he said in passing, you know, this will create a situation where BC is the only province in Canada that can't restrict drug use because every other province in the country does this. So that was kind of a, gee, we caught off guard by this and I'm not sure what to say. I would have to say, Simi, a week later, I haven't seen any further response from the government. I think they are really, really wrestling with this one. And when you read the judgment, it's not surprising because the chief justice bought the arguments entirely of opponents of any attempt to restrict open drug use. Uh, it's, you know, the chief says in his decision, well, you know, I understand there's concerns and, you know, I'll say there are concerns about open drug use and the impact, but he says it would uh, uh, risk irreparable harm to drug users if these restrictions on open drug use were maintained. And he's said the constitutional right to charter rights and freedoms, uh, right to public safe or safety of life and limb. I, when you read that whole thing over, I don't see how they get through this thing. It's only a temporary injunction, Simi. It expires on the 31st of March. But looking over the judgment, it's hard to see any clear route that the government can be sure of maintaining this law that they brought in in October. Okay, let's talk about uh, the different avenues that are available to them on this. Okay, well, probably, you know, the safest uh, option within the system is to say, in effect, okay, we hear you. It's the Chief Justice of the BC Supreme Court that's ruled this. Uh, the judge says the government has other options. So one of those options is to, uh, the law has been passed, but the regulations under the law have not been passed. So you might put your legislative drafting team to work trying to come up with regulations that would bring in some restrictions on open drug use, but reconciled with uh, the court ruling. You could do that. Uh, you could then wait for the injunction to expire and go to a full-blown court case under in front of the judge, uh, defending your legislation, 
remounting all your arguments against the opponents uh, who won the case and essentially submit the whole thing to the court system. Uh, Simi, as you know, even if you lose at BC Supreme Court, you go to BC Court of Appeal and try to win there and you can end up in front of the Supreme Court of Canada. The trouble with all of that route, Simi, is political pressure right now to deal with this problem. The New Democrats originally this time last year when they decriminalized open drug use, said we didn't need this kind of a law because existing legislation would allow you to do it. And they were persuaded to bring this law in to, to deal with widespread problems identified by mayors and police of the consequences of open drug use, which is sort of basically chaos. Uh, you know, the public... I think Mayor Nanaimo has well put it in the last few days, Leonard Croak, the public is fed up with this. The open drug use that's been going on in communities um, is seriously threatening uh, public order and people aren't going to stand for it. So, you know, that's why they brought the law in. Uh, Simi, it's not a very appealing scenario to say, well, we're going to spend the next three or four years in court defending this. Um, Leonard Croak who I will note is a former NDP MLA and from the left side of the party, he's mayor of Nanaimo and he says, if the government can't deal with this, his great fear is it'll be a deciding factor in the election next fall. And as I said, Krogh is a new Democrat. He is not looking for the NDP government to be driven from office. Okay, what about the other political options here? Well... Um, BC Conservative leader John Rustad jumped in, and you know, as people have opinions about Rustad, but he responds very quickly, and he responds in a populist way. He noted that the court used the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to justify saying you can't go ahead with this law because it would, um, you know, he cited the Charter of Rights under Section Seven of the Charter. So Rustad says, look. Uh, you can talk all you want about fixing the legislation, but if he were premier, he would simply invoke the notwithstanding clause in the Constitution. That's there in the Constitution. It's an override to the Constitution. It essentially says, doesn't matter what the courts say, the legislature is determined to do this, and we're going to do it. That clause in the Constitution, Simi, hasn't been used very often since the Charter was brought in, what, 40 years ago? But there is a growing sense, I think, you can say validly to say this, whatever you think of it, that the public is supportive of the clause being used in some cases where the courts are seen as being out of touch with what ordinary people are dealing with in their lives. And a good example is the one that Leonard Krogan and Nanaimo has invoked. Chaos, disorder, open drug use, um, people taking too many drugs and reacting violently. Um, <clears throat> you know, not everybody lives in the kind of safe enclave the judges live in, in the kind of safe neighborhoods that they live in. And I think the critics of this ruling have made a valid point that whatever you know, the judge knows the Constitution better than we do, 
but the judge is also out of touch with the public. And in that sense, I think Rustad has put his finger, the conservatives have put their finger on one possible way through this. The New Democrats have already ruled out using the notwithstanding clause in other circumstances. I don't think they will do that. But what we're seeing here, Simi, is a real, real dilemma for the government. How do you deal with public disorder around open drug use and somehow or other square that with the reluctance of the courts to put any limits on open drug use? Talking a little bit more about the uh, homeowner grant, it was an interesting conversation we had with the finance minister about that yesterday, Vaughn. Yes, very interesting. And Simi, before we get to that, there is one other option the provincial government has uh, for dealing with open drug use. And it's implied in the court decision. And I just want to note it because it it is an option, but there's problems with it. So the other option is the judge said, you know, if there were more safe places to take drugs, he would uh, suggest he'd have been more sympathetic to the idea of restricting open drug use in some places. But these safe injection sites, there's only 47 of them in BC, which is a lot, most of them are not open 24-7. So the judge kind of says there, hey, if you built more of those and spread them around the province, then maybe you could get away with restricting open drug use. The trouble with that is that that's the kind of thing that a judge can say, but a practical politician in the provincial government is going to say, the reason we don't have more open drug use, uh, more safe injection sites, is because they're very hard sell with communities. They themselves become a focus for chaos and disorder and open air drug markets, you don't want to be next to one of these. So it's all very well to say, hey, if we had more safe injection sites, right. um, you could then restrict it. But look, that isn't a particularly practical option either. So uh, as I said, it's a genuine dilemma for the New Democrats. They didn't expect this. I think they're having trouble figuring out what the hell to do about it. And I'm not surprised by that. And the homeowner grant. So... You put the question to the finance minister, Katrina Conroy, yesterday. The homeowner grant has been under fire in this province for years because everybody gets it, or virtually everybody gets it, and many of them don't need it. And why doesn't the government means test the grant or phase it out, except for the truly needy? Uh, Conroy's... (laughs) I loved your answer to you. It was, we recognize it's not the best tax, but it's going to be with us for a while. So exactly. It's, it's not going year. anywhere. Yeah. There's no way it's going to do this. You know, and, and she points out that the critics of the homeowner grant look at the assessed value of the houses where you qualify for it. So a $2.1 million home uh, is the threshold and you qualify for the full homeowner grant at that. The, the trouble with looking at it that way is that, that the assessed value of the house doesn't really address the ability to pay. Uh, people with enormous mortgages where one partner is working to service the mortgage and the other one is trying to make ends meet on everything else, they probably need the tax relief. Seniors who are living in the family home that, heck, they've had all their lives and want to go on living there, uh, they may not. They may be on a fixed income. They probably are. So they could actually use the homeowner grant, which is for seniors almost nine hundred dollars. So that's the reason the government has been very reluctant 
to jump in. It's an NDP government, despite all the times it's been advised to, hey, address this thing. It's an equity issue. The figuring out a way to strip the homeowner grant away from people who really don't need it. Their mortgage is paid off. Uh, the house is, you know, they're on pretty good income. They've got a good pension or whatever. Figuring out how to strip it away from those people and not penalize the, the, the two-income family where one income is barely servicing the mortgage with rising interest rates, or the senior simply living in the family home and on a fixed income, that's the challenge. Um, I think what is actually going on inside the government is an attempt to figure out a way to do this that would be equitable and fair. There is no way they're going to do it in an election year. My guess is that the people running for office in the fall are going to be asked, uh, are you willing, you know, are you planning to stick with the homeowner grant the way it is? Are you going to start phasing it out? And my guess is that might be a very dangerous answer politically at a time when people are concerned about the cost of living. You make there's such an interesting point there, Vaughn, is that given that we have an election coming up this year, I feel like that's with everything that's going on right now, that's all that's happening behind the scenes is people figuring out what they're going to say leading up to the election. Yeah. And what are you going to answer to some tough questions on yes. this one? The easy, I, and the logic of phasing it out is perfectly understandable. I mean, good examples in, in some communities in British Columbia, there are very few homes that are assessed the value of $2 million. So everybody gets it. But you understand it when they look at it inside the government, everybody goes, oh, wait a minute, you're going to make some people very, very angry. And it isn't going to be clear that by phasing out the homeowner grant, you're actually going to be financing relief for the people that really need it. Exactly. All right, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. How can you prevent being scammed? Oh, so many people out there that are trying to separate us from our money. And our Scott Chance is here to talk about that, especially on the phone, Scott. On the phone. The phone is a classic way because unfortunately, lots of scammers are going after people who are elderly and elderly people still use the phone. They answer the phone at home, no call display, no nothing. And they just assume that people are calling for the right reason and they're not. This is happening a lot, uh, and it feels like, especially in the last few weeks, I've noticed more scam calls. Well, yeah, it's a new year, so um, I guess people just quotas. assume that- These yes, scammers have quotas, <laughs> too. They absolutely do. It's a huge business, and it's not just phones, Simi. They're also doing it on email and social media and text. We know all of these things are happening. So I got in touch with Rachel Jolliker. She is the Director of Cyber Market Intelligence and Financial Crimes at Interact, so they deal with a ton of- this stuff. And she is very versed on some new big scams that are coming in 2024. And I asked her, because this is this is the problem for me, is is there a way to know you're being scammed before you're, you lose the money, like before you've actually been scammed? There are certainly some telltale signs. They often build a story. They don't come right at you with the opportunity. So I'll give you an example of one scam that is really gained a lot of momentum uh, late last year, and, and we're seeing it right now in January, is investment scams. Okay. So uh, even I've been, you know, I've been approached, and they'll make it not like it's an investment scam, but they'll accidentally message you. Often it's through uh, channels such as WhatsApp, 
and they'll just come at you and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm trying to reach a friend. I thought that was you. And then they'll start engaging you in a conversation and almost a relationship where they're gaining your trust. And this will take time. So that requires a significant amount of investment on their side, but it also accounts for making sure that you don't see all the telltale signs right away. So eventually they'll get you in and then they'll say, oh, by the way, I've been investing in this portfolio, crypto, usually cryptocurrency, and they make you try it and not large sums amount of money, but a little bit and a little bit, and then they'll show you fake returns. And that's where usually the person just kind of falls victim and gives more and more funds. And it takes a long time for them to, to figure out that it is a scam. Hmm. Two really interesting things there. The first one is that they that idea that, oh, sorry, I wasn't trying to call you. This was a mistake. So people sort of feel lucky, right? It's not like, hey, I'm reaching out to you and 100 other people. It's like, oh, no, I got in touch with you by mistake. But since we're talking anyway, uh, I have this great opportunity. So it all seems really sort of natural and organic. But on their end, it's totally planned out. Yes, absolutely. Which is why it can be a little bit challenging to find those those telltale signs. But there are ways. So you have to think about this person has never found you before, right? So all of a sudden, when you're kind of wrapped into it, you just have to stop for a moment and go, what are the what is the likelihood of this person who by accident reached out to me? And now we've built a relationship and now is offering investment advice. So they will, I have never met this person and I'm going to give them money to invest on my behalf. Right. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned uh, was cryptocurrency, because this is a thing that, you know, is out there. And we know that, uh, do you feel like cryptocurrency is a big part of scams? Yes, uh, it is. And and it's just because sometimes, it, in, to your point, it's hard for people to understand. So they they need someone to help them navigate through, and it can be also challenging getting your funds back uh, because you can't just walk into your financial institution and ask them to withdraw the funds, right? It's, it's more complicated. So absolutely, yes, that, that plays a big part. Now, what should somebody do if they get themselves into this situation and they realize that they are uh, being scammed? So the first thing I would say is call the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center to report this. They'll help them uh, go through the motion, most likely report it to law enforcement. I think that's that's very important. Um, and don't, you know, the first thing I should have said is don't give any more money and don't share additional personal information to usually these criminals not only ask for funds, but they ask for personal information. So then they can use it either against you or they can use it in future fraud cases. So three easy steps here is just stop, scrutinize, speak up. And by stop, it's like don't feel pressure into taking action. If they're asking you for something and they're pressuring you, just take a moment. Scrutinize, think about it, do your research. There's a lot of resources online. Intrac has some resources. And I mentioned the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center. And then really speak up. So talk to friends and family. Uh, report it to law enforcement and to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Okay, great. Now, you mentioned the, that, oh, I got in touch with you by mistake scam. Is there any other sort of big ones that people should be aware of? A common scam that, that works uh, regardless of time of year is the online marketplace scam. 
um, as there's scarcity, there will be a higher demand. And then people might go in non-traditional ways of buying these goods and services. So they'll walk away from, from stores, go more online, and then online marketplace. Uh, that is a huge opportunity for, for criminals because it doesn't require a lot of investments. They, they put an ad online and people will buy it. So think of concert tickets, uh, sporting events that are in high demand. I know that um, Taylor Swift announced a concert in Vancouver, I believe, for, for at the end yep. of this year. Hot. It's a hot so, ticket. <laughs> and it was a hot ticket here in Toronto as well. And we saw that as soon as Taylor Swift announced uh, her concert and the dates, we saw fake ads on online marketplace advertising those tickets, even though those those tickets weren't available yet. So we know there's an opportunity there. Those criminals are going to take advantage of it. So I would suggest do your due diligence and maybe stick to traditional buying method and go through those those resources. Rachel Jolliker, she's Director of Cyber Market Intelligence and Financial Crimes at Interact. Beware the fake Taylor Swift tickets. Cindy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also, I love it when I get one of those text messages where they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm looking forward. I just play along. Right. Love it. I love to see how long I can get people to communicate with me. That is a fun game. I, I don't have the time to do that. It amuses me. But it is it is really fun. I love when people <laughs> post their, their, when they got the getter, yes. when they got the scammer, those are the best. Most of the time, they always give up because I'm starting to engage, being like, oh yeah, hey, what's new with you? And then they just go, when can we meet for a beer? I haven't seen you in forever. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you for that, Scott. Great advice there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you ever thought about what you want to have done with your remains? <laughs> what a weird question to ask at this time of the morning, right? Well, the reason I am asking right. is because people think of all sorts of unique and different things to do to represent how they live their lives. You may have seen the story about Gloria Nolan in the news. Lifelong Star Trek fan seems fitting that her remains are going to be launched into space, the final frontier Colby Youngblood is helping to make that happen. Colby is the president of Celestis, Inc. and joins us now. Colby, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What are you going to do for Gloria and her family? How does this work? So they're going to be launched on our very first, it's called our Voyager service. And it's a deep space service where we fly the the flight capsules containing the remains or uh, the DNA of our clients uh, out into what's called a heliocentric orbit into our solar system, 330 million kilometers out into our solar system. Uh, It's the first ever Voyager service. We've got four different Memorial Space Flight services, but this one's special in that we've been manifesting passengers on it since 1997. So if you can imagine 27 years of uh, gathering participants are finally culminating in this uh, inaugural launch for our Voyager service called the Enterprise. It's called the Enterprise Flight. Of course it is. And, uh, <laughs> it, and, it's, and it's fitting uh, going on our partner, uh, United Launch Alliance, ULA, their first ever, uh, it's called the Vulcan Centaur rocket. So uh, ULA has been in the process of getting this rocket ready for several years now. And uh, it's going to be a a monumental launch um, that will take uh, not just one of our missions. We actually have two missions on board. Uh, Our 
second lunar service, uh, which means we will put flight capsules on the surface of the moon. Uh, when the rocket takes off, it'll get to a point at about 200,000 miles uh, over, over Earth. Uh, it'll separate, and uh, the lunar lander will head its way to the moon. And then the glorious flight capsule, it's inside what's called the Centaur 5 stage spacecraft. It will fire its rockets and head off uh, out into, into deep space. And once it's in this orbit, like I said, it's called a heliocentric orbit because it's going to be orbiting around the sun. Once it's there, the Enterprise flight will no longer be called that. It will change its name to the Inter Enterprise Station because it will be in this forever orbit around the sun. Colby, let me ask you, obviously a lot of years of dedication to make this happen. As you said, 20, 27 years how did you keep the faith on this? Like, why was this so important to you to see this through with all these decades that went by? Well, I have to give it to our our CEO and our founder, Charlie Chafer. He's the visionary. Uh, Charlie was a true pioneer for commercial space. He was with a company that launched the very first commercial rocket back in 1982. And one of Charlie's roles in that, which obviously it's very important, you know, is that, that set the bar for companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. His role was in Washington, D.C., pushing the legislation through uh, that eventually founded commercial space. And one of the reasons why he founded the company was because he wanted to make commercial space accessible to everybody. You know, everyone, you know, if you think about it, not everyone, but a lot of people would love to be astronauts, and they love to space travel. Sure. They love to, you know, go to space. But it's not realistic for everyone. And now you can go to space without being an astronaut. You have to be a billionaire to, you know, pay for a $500,000 flight with, you know, some of these commercial space companies that will offer that. Well, most people don't have $500,000 for a space flight. Well, Charlie thought, well, how, how can you do that? How can you bring that? Right. Uh, how can you bring commercial space? Well, everyone dies. Everyone passes away. And so the Memorial Space Flight, the idea of the Memorial Space Flight was how Charlie is going to bring commercial space to everyone. By flying as a secondary payload, we could make it affordable. Our entry-level service starts at $3,000, and you can fly you know, your loved one's ashes or uh, your own DNA as low as $3,000 to space. But obviously and, uh, there must have been obstacles very, along the way, right? Because it's taken a long time to kind of get oh my to gosh. this point. Oh my gosh, yes. So he founded the company in 1994. And in 1997, we finally got our first flight. So it took three years to find a rocket provider that was going to go to space and that would fly us. You know, back in the 90s, rockets and, and space flights were scarce. He was able to, to get that first flight in 1997. We were able to get our second flight in 1998, which was our first Luna service where we flew the ashes of Gene Shoemaker, who was a famous NASA astronaut. Mm -hmm. But uh, substantial obstacles. Do you get a lot of Star Trek fans? Is, are those people the main the ones that mainly oh, sign yes. up for this? Yes, very much so, especially this, this Enterprise flight. So one of the things, you know, to answer your earlier question, how did we persevere through 27 years? Uh, in our very first flight, we flew the ashes of, and this goes back to Star Trek too. on our first flight, it was called the Founder's Flight, we flew the ashes of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. I remember this, yeah. And uh, his wife, Majel Roddenberry, was there. 
And uh, Majel and Charlie shared a moment where, you know, she was so moved that she made Charlie promise her that when it was her time that he would fly her ashes along with Jean's out into deep space. Wow. And and Charlie made her that promise in 1997. And he he made the promise knowing that it wasn't going to happen soon, but it would happen eventually because, again, as a pioneer, he saw the birth of commercial space, and now he's seen it completely turn into what he thought he was going to be, what it was going to do. And, uh, and so over the years, we've, uh, we've picked up a lot of notable Star Trek celebrities. Last year, the actress who played Lieutenant Uhura, when she passed away, she, uh, her family signed her up. DeForest Kelly, who played oh, Bones. Oh, McCoy, yeah. You ever heard? Yeah, Dr. Yep, McCoy. Exactly, Doctor Doctor McCoy. That's right. Um, have you ever heard "Beam Me Up, Scotty"? Of course. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Doohan. Yeah, Jimmy Doohan, who played Scotty, is on board. That's amazing. Uh, we've got Doug Trumbull. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is uh, Doug Trumbull. Uh, he was the special effects master for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, along with many other very popular movies. Uh, we have his ashes on board as well. So well, we're very fortunate in the uh, home. Many of the original cast uh, wanted to participate after they passed away. And fans, too. Listen, Colby, thanks for telling us about it today. Uh, thanks for having me, and we appreciate it. That's Colby Youngblood, president of Celestis, Inc. Probably saw the story in the news about the Canadian woman who chose to have her remains blasted into space because she was a huge Star Trek fan. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Vancouver Police Department is beginning its use of body-worn cameras, and this has been a long time coming. More and more police forces around the province will be adopting these cameras this year or next, and, you know, supporters say it's about time. But there are still questions about how they are going to be used. What are the protocols? What will happen to the video? Well, for more on all of that, we're joined now by Ron McDonald, who is the Chief Civilian Director of the Independent Investigations Office. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Cindy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, do you support body-worn cameras? Yes, absolutely. I've been calling for um, all frontline uh, police officers in this country to be equipped with body on ca- body-worn cameras now for some years. Um, in my view, it's it's high time that this occurs. Uh, in in the simplest sense, uh, the public, you know, basically uh, everybody in the public walks around with a high-definition camera in their pocket. And yet the police aren't recording incidents where they use force against individuals. And I think the failure to do so can actually lead to a sense of distrust by the public that that level of transparency is not there. So it's time uh, for frontline police officers to have body-worn cameras. And so why do you think then, Ron, that it's taken so long? Well, there certainly are... uh, you know, issues around it. I, I mean, first of all, police already, um, you know, use video in, in other ways, particularly with, with dash cam video on, on many of their vehicles, um, which already provides video for use in our investigations, for example. But, but there are certainly uh, economies of scale with the, the fact that if you have every officer wearing a camera, then there's all sorts of issues in terms of storing that information, sorting that information, and accessing that information. There are privacy interests associated with it, et cetera. And and I get that, and that's probably why it's taken this long. Um, However, it's taken us much longer in Canada to move to this than it has in the United States because 
we see uh, a much greater use of body-worn cameras in the United States than we do in Canada, in Canada. Okay, so we've heard now that the Vancouver Police Department is moving to make this happen. They are arriving. Uh, what about the rules that they've put in place here? For instance, they are going to store the video recordings 13 months. Is that long enough? Well, um, it, you know, these, these, the, the various rules and policies that they have set are, are more or less consistent with the uh, the province's police standards for the use of body-worn cameras. And in, I, I think when you look at those standards, you'll have to say that, you know, those seem reasonable at this point. Now, are they the best standards? Is that the way um, it, it, it should be done? Um, only time will tell. Um, but I think the first question is, are we starting from a place of reasonableness? I think so. Um, 13 months, um, makes sense. Um, generally speaking, uh, if something is going to be done with that video, if it's going to be needed in a criminal matter, if it's going to be needed in one of our investigations, it should be accessed within that 13 months. And of course, if there's some reason for uh, keeping it longer, it will be kept. Um, the 13 months will only apply to video that nobody has any interest in. Okay. And so some of the other concerns, though, were about whether or not police should be allowed to view the video before a trial. Yes. So that is a, a, a very valid concern. There are There is a, a, a ton of research that demonstrates that if a witness um, observes a video, it can certainly impact their memory. So I can tell you this, that in with respect to our investigation, so in any time that the police action leads to serious harm or death of any individual, our guidelines or our directions to police are that uh, uh, anyone who is a witness, any police officer who will be a witness is not entitled to look at any video uh, prior to, to completing their notes and, and reports and to prior to us uh, taking a statement from them. There can be exceptions to that if there is an ongoing criminal matter concurrent to ours, but generally speaking, that's the rule. And and they are bound to follow those rules. And indeed, there was a court of appeal decision in 2020, which upheld the IIO's right to take a position that officers should not look at video prior to participating in one of our interviews. Okay. And why is that? Why is that so important? Well, as I said, there is a lot of research that demonstrates that when an individual person uh, looks at a video, it can impact uh, their memory and they can remember things differently and, for, and forget other aspects. Memory in humans is a very fragile thing. Um, uh, the research shows us that it's not, it's not like a camera taking a picture of something. It's impacted by all sorts of things, such as uh, the stress of a situation, you know, normal memory problems, um, you know, the, your involvement in the matter itself. If you know people, any biases you might have in favor or against any individuals, that type of thing. And allowing a person to watch video can impact that, that memory more. You must remember that uh, a police perspective uh, of a scene is is what they see through their eyes, but also what they hear uh, through their ears, um, what they can sense through their body. All of those things are important to us in our investigations. And when we speak to them, um, the body-worn camera, although it gives very important evidence, is only from one perspective. It just takes a picture or lots of pictures together, obviously, because it's a film. But um, 
we want them to be able to relate to us what's in their mind and what was in their mind without being uh, cluttered by having viewed the video. Right. Okay. Now, people obviously hope that, you know, with more body-worn cameras, we get more transparency, we get more accountability. And if that's the case, what is your opinion on how public these videos should be made? For instance, like, should they be released to the media? Yeah, so I think... I think there is uh, room for um, there to be more transparency from these types of videos. And in fact, I've begun a process at the IIO for us to examine whether we, during our investigations, should be more forthcoming with video that we receive, be it body cam video or any other type of video. Um, the, the trick is, if it's an investigation that we believe could wind up with the Crown for consideration of charges and then ultimately in court, um, it would be inappropriate for a state actor such as the Independent Investigations Office to effectively uh, show the uh, show our hand or show the evidence of our case prior to that trial, because that can impact an individual's fair trial interests. So there are restrictions such as that that are are protected by the Canadian Charter um, about a person having a fair trial. But where those don't apply in cases where we aren't going to refer the matter to the Crown, for example, there may well be more room for us to make available to the public through the media or otherwise um, video that we have gathered. And and we are definitely looking at that. Okay, so is there a, a general set of rules that all police forces have to follow with this, Ron, or are police forces free to interpret some of the rules their way? Well, as I said, there is. Uh, you can go online and um, see the BC policing standards that relate to body cameras, and if you Google that, they come up, um, and they'll give you a sense of those standards. Um, you know, as you know, with any rules, any law, there's always room for interpretation, and you know, police are entitled, or any individual is entitled to take reasonable interpretations of of certain standards and. Um, how that plays out, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. I, some people have said, well, there are these questions about body cameras and, you know, is it going to work this way? Is it going to work that way? My point of view is more of a positive one, and that is that we don't have this evidence at this point in time. It's very important evidence for our investigations and for the public in general. Um, Yes, there may be questions about what happens to body camera video once it's uh, in existence, but it's better that we have it and have those questions to ask than if we don't have it at all. I think that's a good point. Ron, thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care. You too. That's Ron McDonald, who's the Chief Civilian Director of the Independent Investigation Office, a proponent, as you heard, of body-worn cameras for police forces. Now, you're going to hear a lot about them this year because more and more officers will have these, including the Vancouver Police Department, which is moving forward after years of discussion about how to use them. Police people hope this will bring more transparency, accountability, that it will just be another tool uh, you know, to improve interactions with police. This is Mornings with Simi. We are in a healthcare crisis, right? Ask anyone who can't get a family doctor, can't get chemotherapy, can't get a bed in an emergency room. The system is hurting badly. So why then would the health region Fraser Health increase spending by a lot in administrative costs last year? Well, one of the many questions that I have after reading an investigative piece by our next guest, it's Tyler Olson, editor at the Fraser Valley Current, who joins us now. Tyler, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, now tell me about this piece. Yeah, so 
if you look, every health authority, each, uh, all health care in BC is uh, delivered by health authorities, and there are five of them um, for each region in the region in the province. And so each of those has a balanced statement that they release at the end of each year that divvies up uh, where each dollar is spent. And so looking at those, you can see over the last year or um, between 2021 and 21-22, the amount spent in corporate purposes in Vancouver Coastal Health and in Fraser Health increased by for 30%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it amounts to about $200 million over those, uh, over just the span of a year. Okay, that is a lot, though. Now, was this pandemic-related costs? Yeah, so if you, that was the uh, excuse that I got from Fraser Health. But if you look at uh, the numbers, the, the weird thing is that the corporate spending actually didn't increase that much, actually, during the, the first two years of the pandemic. So, the last year in which uh, population health spending, spending to um, address and uh, the pandemic and, and provide vaccines to people and deal with the, uh, the pandemic that uh, was afflicting our region and the country, that actually decreased at the same time the corporate spending increased by, again, about $100 million in the Fraser Health region and another $100 million in the Vancouver Coastal Health region. Okay, so looking at the past year, so 2022 to 23, which is the pandemic was done at that point, right? The system was experiencing different things. Corporate spending at Fraser Health, according to your piece, increased by almost $100 million. Tyler, do I have that number right? Yes, you do. Okay, so what was their excuse for that? That's post-pandemic. And, and that's kind of the, the issue is there hasn't been an excuse. There are potential reasons why corporate spending could increase that way. It could be increased, um, especially given the size of new hospital projects in the Fraser Health region, the Fraser Valley, and and the Vancouver area. You could see that maybe planning would be needed. Maybe um, certain elements within those projects would be booked and lumped into that corporate bucket that um, will eventually come off the books and turn into actual hospitals and healthcare for people. But when I asked the folks at Vancouver Coastal Health, I got no answer and no explanation for why the spending uh, had increased by so much. And Fraser Health didn't even uh, didn't uh, mention those capital projects that seem like they could be the answer, could be the reason. So you either have an issue where spending has gone up in areas that aren't directly providing health care to people, or you have an issue where the health authorities that um, are devoted to providing this key service to uh, British Columbians aren't um, bothering to kind of explain how they spend that money and how they're delivering that service. Right. So you gave them an opportunity to say, hey, I saw this in your financial statements. What accounts for this? And they, Vancouver Coastal Health didn't bother to explain anything to you. And Fraser Health told you, oh, it's pandemic related. Yes, exactly. Okay. That doesn't really square with what you found in the corporate statements, though, does it? It, it could, but you, there has to be an explanation that that's, you hope that somebody at one of these massive organizations knows that this uh, spending looks this way and has an explanation or a reason. You'd hope a whole lot of people at one of these organizations do. Um, 
but whatever whatever the case is, they haven't sought the need, seen the need or the ability to uh, provide that so far. I've been waiting and looking at my email inbox, my phone, for a call or an email saying, okay, actually people seem to care about this, and um, here we've dug a little deeper. Here's kind of where all the money is going. But um, thus far, uh, that explanation or that reasoning hasn't been coming. And so we've got people and you and me and other people I've spoken to kind of speculate, well, maybe the money could go here or maybe the money is here or maybe it is just um, administrative waste. You know, Tyler, the irony, of course, in all of this is that corporate spending also covers uh, the communications department, but clearly it's not going towards that because they're not communicating anything. Yeah, I, I mean, all these things, there are, there is good reason to spend this money. You need people to deliver, um, to get people paid. You need people to remind people to get uh, their flu shots at flu season. You need all these important um, kind of secondary uh, services that enable healthcare to function. But one of the things you find in looking at these corporate statements is that while healthcare has grown and the healthcare spending has grown considerably in BC over the last five years, now with the last increase in corporate spending, that administrative and corporate chunk occupies a, a, a larger and larger share of each health dollar than it did five years ago. Okay. So then we should be clear here, Tyler, what is classified as corporate spending? Are there guidelines for that? There are, but they're quite vague. Essentially, when a financial statement is created, every dollar, and we're talking about operational dollars here, is classified in one of about six ways. And the corporate spending, as far as I can tell, includes pretty much everything that doesn't um, that, that that essentially facilitates uh, healthcare delivery, but isn't directly tied. So you have. Um, the other categories include acute care, and that's hospitals. You have community care, that's the delivery of health care um, into people and, and into people's homes. And you have long-term care. And all that money is set aside. And the corporate um, spending is the money that goes towards pay, uh, payroll, strategizing for future plans, planning for future uh, health care provisions, um, you have the, the executive team, you have um, everybody at the Surrey uh, corporate office for Fraser Health. I, I, again, I don't know exactly because they wouldn't tell me, but um, I would suspect that, that most of that spending right. that occurs there um, goes in that bucket. Now, you did a very deep dive into the numbers. Was it hard to kind of plow your way through this? Because it can get quite complicated. It can, but it's actually surprisingly, it's all out there. There's um, each health authority releases a financial statement every year. They're all available online, so anybody can see them. Um, so it, it becomes a matter of looking at uh, one balance sheet or one statement of operations and plunking those numbers into the spreadsheet. And then the the in, the weird thing is here is that it's not that obscure. It's not that hard to see. But um, but the answer for why exactly it looks this way um, is the thing that we're kind of still waiting for and we need um, so that it's not um, just a mystery. Right. It shouldn't be just a mystery, especially with, you know, this is public money here. So what kind of reaction have you gotten here, Tyler? What have you heard? 
um, from the health authorities themselves, I've heard nothing. And then at, from the public at large, I've heard a lot of speculation and wonder about what, what this could mean and what, where this money could be allocated. Um, lots of people are taking this kind of the way I am and thinking, okay, maybe there is a good reason for this, right. but that we expect something better. And then some people are suggesting that this is a sign of just the fact that these organizations are very large and, and sometimes large organizations um, can experience corporate bloat in certain ways that aren't, doesn't necessarily serve the, the people they're trying to deliver services to. Right. Well, I encourage people to read your story. Tyler, where can they check it out? Uh, our uh, website is fvcurrent.com, or the Fraser Valley Current. We cover an area that roughly spans from the Fraser Canyon to Langley, but sometimes and hopefully we uh, deliver information and news that uh, will interest people beyond that, too. Well, it certainly did this time. Thank you so much for that, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me. And good luck getting more answers. That's Tyler Olson, editor at the Fraser Valley Current. You can check out the story where he does this deep dive into the balance sheets of health regions around the province. It is fvcurrent.com. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Mickey Mouse, well, at least a very early version of Mickey Mouse, is now in the public domain with no copyright protection, as we've been hearing about in the news, right? So if you thought, well, what does that actually mean? We have part of that answer for you. It means things like this next movie that we are going to be talking about. And the person who produced this movie is Jamie Bailey, Canadian filmmaker and producer of Mickey's Mousetrap, who joins us now. Jamie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, describe the movie for me. What is this about? Uh, well, basically the plot is that uh, this uh, girl turned 21. Uh, she uh, works at like a Chuck E. Cheese, Dave Buster's type place. Her friends throw her an overnight birthday party with the place being closed. And somebody becomes possessed by Mickey Mouse and chaos ensues. Okay, so it's essentially like an evil Mickey Mouse. But this, we're talking early version of Mickey Mouse here, right? This is 1928 Steamboat Willie. Uh, a parody of of that character, yes. Okay, so obviously this is possible because Mickey that that version of Mickey Mouse is now in the public domain. Did you think, okay, yeah, we have to use this in some way? Yeah, absolutely. That's why we did it. Yeah, we saw Blood and Honey came out two years ago, and uh, they had a lot of success. They made fifteen million dollars globally, and uh, we thought this was the next thing. And actually, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm quite shocked that we we're the first people out of the gate. Really? You thought there'd be more Absolutely. people running to do this? Uh, yeah, because everyone, everyone in the industry was kind of talking about this, uh, but we actually did it. How does one come up with the idea of an evil Mickey Mouse? What, how do you do this? <laughs> well, well we, we make horror movies. We make these uh, low-budget, low independent horror movies. We had The Influencer come out uh, a year ago, December. We've made two sequels to that one. Uh, this, is, this is our playhouse, so to speak. Uh, and we just thought this would be fantastic to take this childhood character that we all grew up with and uh, reinventing it, reimagining it, and having them go around killing people. Okay, Who so wouldn't want to see that? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to see that, Jamie? Such a good point. Okay, what is the key to making a good horror movie, since this is your specialty? Uh, well, you know, you got to create suspense. you got to create uh, fear that something's going to happen around the corner. And then you got to actually make something happen. 
And that's what we did with this. Is that uh, it? Mickey is Mouse. that really like you could put put that on a sticker? That's like a bumper sticker? That's how you well, do it? You, you know, it, I, it's probably a bit more than that than it, that I can say in a soundbite. But I mean, that's that's the main juice of it. You, you want to scare people. That's you, you, that, that, the primal fear thing that we all have. That's why we love horror movies. Is there a formula, do you think, to doing that, Jamie, then? Do you have to do the, yes, okay, don't look behind you? Like all the things that we make fun of, like they didn't scream. Is that also something that you follow in a horror movie? Well, I mean, you try not to fall into tropes. You try to reinvent the wheel. Like we're reinventing Mickey. Like every time we make a movie, we're trying to not make it so predictable. Uh, but there are things that are, you know, tried and true and they work. Like a jump scare here and there. Like that's, you know, we still do that kind of stuff. But you're trying to be uh, fresh. You're trying to keep it new. And uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, one way, I guess, with Mickey Mouse as the lead character to kind of, well, we haven't seen Mickey do this yet. <laughs> that must have actually been kind of fun. It was, uh, like, really, like, we, uh, Simon Phillips, who plays Mickey Mouse, uh, we just love movies. Like, we just love making movies. And we hope that people can feel that in this. It's, you know, a low-budget independent movie, you know, we don't have $100 million that, that Disney has to go make a movie. We hope that you can feel that, you know, we're, we're movie lovers, they're making movies. Jamie, was there ever a concern that perhaps Disney would be watching to see exactly what you did with this? Well, for certain, we know that Disney will be watching us. They'll be watching everyone that is uh, doing stuff with Mickey Mouse. There's a horror game that was announced. There's another another company that's making another movie they, they announced uh, right after we announced. Um, yeah, sure, they're watching. Uh, I'm sure they have a couple of lawyers that need to justify their existence. But I've been saying this all week. You know, Disney, if you're listening, uh, rather than sue us, I will come and direct the next three Marvel movies for free. <laughs> Are you and sure I've been that's about it? I'll throw, I'll throw in a Pixar too on top of that. Oh, okay. Are you sure that's a winning combination these days? It seems like those Marvel movies are on the decline. Oh yeah, that's it. but I'm there to help. I'm here. I'm, I'm not not going to judge. I, I love those movies. I love everything that Disney makes. I'm a big Disney fan. I grew up with Mickey Mouse. You're like, I'd please, any- please Disney, don't discount me just because of this movie. Yeah, exactly. No, like uh, invite me into the fold. <laughs> Take me into the fold. Okay, so tell me, what to you makes a good horror movie? Uh, like, I think The Shining is my all-time one of my all-time favorite movies. Good choice. Uh, like, yeah, like I mean, just it's a smart movie, right? It's not not it's not just jump scares. It's not just playing on tropes. It's it's create, getting into people's heads. Uh, I, I think that's the key part of it. I think psychological fear is probably the best kind of fear. Right. So, would you say then it's about what you don't see versus what you see? Yeah, oftentimes, yes. Yeah, uh, what's around the corner or or, or the deeper meaning of of, uh, why someone's afraid of something. Like there's a deep psychology in there that I think that we try to play on. I think it's crucial to making a decent horror movie. Okay, so how did you how did you leverage this character? How did you take this Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse and use it? Were there drawings that you use? Like, how did you get the inspiration here? Oh, well, the inspiration was just that it was becoming open domain, so it's how can we adapt this to a live-action film. And we've basically, it's basically a man in a mask. Uh, you know, what, uh, his eyes are different than the traditional Mickey Mouse. They're all black. We wear black gloves, not white gloves. This is a, keeping it all with uh, the Steamboat Willie version and not the modern-day version. And uh, we just had uh, our actor go around killing people. It was, that was it. Oh, so Listen, this is not Shakespeare. Not Shakespeare. <laughs> so simple. But you called it Mickey's Mousetrap, which very much makes the Mickey Mouse part of it front and center, right? So where can people see this movie? Well, okay. So we, we announced that like March would be the latest that it's out. But like uh, now that we, uh, we, the world is now aware of this film, uh, we we're talking to distributors. We're making a, a plan of attack. We don't know if it's going to be theatrical release or just streaming or whatever. We're working out those details, but the film is done, so it could be out much sooner than us.
All right, we'll have to keep watching and find out what happens. Jamie, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Jamie Bailey, a Canadian filmmaker and producer of the movie Mickey's Mousetrap, which, you know, if you hear the title, you would think, oh, that's a kid's movie. It is not a kid's movie. Mickey's Mousetrap is a horror movie involving a scary character that, yes, looks like Mickey Mouse, old Mickey Mouse, like Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse. And now that that is available in the public domain because of a loss of copyright protection, I think you're going to be seeing more things like this. But Mickey's Mousetrap sounds like it is coming to a theater near you.